of the truth regarding Jesus. The truth regarding Jesus. For people who come wanting truth. For people who come wanting truth. Wanting to know if there is a God and some die not believing or choosing not to believe what the gospel presents. It's not that the answers were hard to find. It's that the answers were hard to embrace. It's not that the answers were hard to find about the truth. It's that the answers about the truth were hard to embrace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And may your truth have its way within us. And may your truth cause freedom in us. Freedom in the soul. Freedom in the mind. And evenness of mind. That equanimity that you call evenness and peace. Because of the trust that we have in your truth. I pray that it would, your Holy Spirit would go about in every heart and mind here. To reveal the truth of their lives. Specifically that relationship that you have with each and every one of them. Or that you don't have with each and every one of us. And Lord I pray that this truth that is spoken today regarding your son Jesus. Would cause action in our lives. To be living truth. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay we'll be in the book of John. The book of John in the first chapter, verses 1 through 5. The book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The book of John is probably one of the most powerful books in the Bible, I believe. For me, myself, personally. For what I have gleaned from it. What I have experienced from it. And the truths that Jesus has revealed about himself in it. And the beautifulness or the greatness is the theme of this book in which John presents to us is believing in the deity of Jesus. Believing in the deity of Jesus. You cannot escape this theme throughout the whole book. And I would encourage you to get alone with this book in the Holy Spirit. And find out this theme and how it reveals truth to you and how the truth reveals in your life and what it's pointing to and what it's showing you and what it's transforming you into be. Because you cannot escape that truth from believing in the deity of Jesus Christ. And John presents it in such a way with the deity of Jesus Christ, meaning the rank or essential nature Of the object or subject matter in question. That's what deity means. And that's what he's showing and and, and producing in this book. 20 chapters through John. Showing the rank or the essential nature of Jesus. Also showing the supreme being of who he is. One that is exalted or revered as supremely good or powerful. That's what deity means. So when you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, that's what you're banking everything on. That's what you're hanging your hat on. That's what's convicting your soul of who Jesus Christ is. Why is it so important? The very verse that brings this truth or this theme alive in this book is in the last chapter of John. 
chapter 20. Excuse me, the last chapter before 21. And it says this, John states this in verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, here's what supports this theme. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, Mashiach Nagi, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's why believing in the deity of Jesus Christ is so important. That's why this book is so monumental, so crucial that the Holy Spirit decided to put it in the canon and John wrote three epistles to it, and plus the book of Revelation, which describes the same theme in those other books that he wrote. Marvelous how John is the one who communicates this. Such a beautiful book. I encourage every one of you to emerge yourself in it, to dissect it and study it, for it to be a part of your everyday life. Because there's power. There's power in his name. There's three prominent words that reoccur in this book over and over again. One is truth. Truth. Jesus speaks of this truth a lot about himself, quite frequently about who he is and his relationship with the Father. He speaks a lot about that. He also speaks about truth, bringing about freedom of the soul, freedom of the mind, and the ability to be able to be free from sin and lies, and to be able to freely worship God in the way we were created to be. The second word is believe. This word believe occurs over a hundred times in this book. It kind of gives you an idea what John's trying to communicate to the audience, the Jew and the Greek. Believe. But it's not the noun believe, pistos. It's the noun or the verb action believe, pisteo. It's not just a conviction or truth that go, oh yes, we believe in that. Oh yes, that's great and fine and dandy. Oh, that's so marvelous. But it's a truth that incites action within you to believe, to actually put your entire trust in the name of Jesus Christ. Actively. Putting your trust in who He says He is and who He says He is to be. In such a way where it produces something in us. And it's so marvelous that this word believe also goes tied into hand in hand with the word gnosko, to know. Because it's a process, isn't it? It's a process. A lot of us become transformed the day or that moment we meet Jesus. And Jesus transforms you right there and takes away the drugs, the alcohol, the pornography, the smoking, the adultery, the, the disobedience. All of that he takes away, doesn't he? And he can do that. It's evident and it's been my experience in my life and I've seen it in other people. Rascally men with rascally ways. And God has just cleansed them and transformed them the moment he's met them. That is the power of his name. That is the power of the transformation of his name. But a lot of this stuff is the process. A lot of it is the baggage that we bring along with Jesus, don't we? The baggage of past hurts. The baggage of not being valued. The baggage of not being loved. The baggage of low self-esteem. 
The baggage of lack of confidence. All those things that we bring in life with Jesus, don't we? And we should have left that baggage over here. But He's transformed our lives in this new creation. And now it's this process of pisteo, a process of believing in action and putting your faith in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a process. But that word believe is, is over a hundred times in this book. What is John communicating? This, the third one is life. Life. And he uses this word in conjunction with eternal life. Life forever with God. The famous verse, John 3.16. He uses that word in there as well. But all three of these summed up together. All three of these summed up together. He uses this as the foundation, the motivation of these three words that are used over and over in this book. And it's all out of the supreme purpose of love, agape. It all comes out of that, doesn't it? And he gives this beautiful picture on how to love. But all three of those words, all together, truth, believe, and life. Wow. It totally supports the theme, doesn't it? It totally supports the theme about believing in the deity of Jesus Christ and who He says He is to be. Because that's what it produces in us. An act of truth, an act of belief, and an act of lifestyle according to Jesus Christ. All rooted and all based in love. Every bit of it. It's beautiful when you find out about God, when you find out about God the Father, when you find out about Jesus Christ, specifically in this book, every motivation of what He does is foundationally found in the framework of agape. Agapeo. Every bit of it. Nothing else. It's all in the agape. All love. That's the purpose of God. That's why John so Beautifully communicated it in his first epistle in chapter 4. God is love. Every bit of what he does is based upon that. Beautiful. Such a beautiful God. Such a beautiful revealing truth. The author and date of this book, we know that it's written somewhere around the late century 90 A.D., before the close of the first century. We know that John was exiled in Patmos somewhere in the 90s. So somewhere along the line, this book in Revelation was written. For what what purpose? What purpose did he write during that monumental persecuting time of his life in the church? So that people would believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. So you would not be shaken so you would know for sure in what you believe in and the facts and the truth of the matter. But the author of this book, although he does not state his name in there, that he is the author. But he refers to himself as what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And I thought about that. I'm like, why would he do that? That's very prideful to say, don't you think? In some ways or another. Well, what about me? He doesn't love me. Well, yes, he loves you, but I'm his favorite. I'm the one he loves the best. No. He had 
excuse me, he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This was a process over time. He didn't develop this in three years, the three years he ran with Jesus. He developed that over time, all the way up into the AD 90, to the day of his death. He personally was able to say the one whom Jesus loved because he had a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God himself. That's what the relationship, believing in the deity of Jesus Christ, does to a person. You can actually believe in your heart and mind that Jesus loves me. Can you actually say that Jesus loves you? Has Jesus told you that he loves you? Have you sat in prayer alone by yourself and meditated on that very fact and he says, I love you? I challenge you to find that. I challenge you to search for that. I challenge you to seek for that. It'll change your life. It'll change your heart. So many times we find ourselves in prayer asking and petitioning the Lord. So many times we don't find ourselves just quiet and listening to him say, I love you. Or give you a beautiful verse about your life and where you're supposed to be. We're too busy talking instead of listening. I challenge you, sit alone so you can hear the words, I love you. Even if he just brings you a verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for you. That if you believe in you're my son, you shall have eternal life. He's saying he loves you. That's how John felt. I believe that was the motive behind the description whom Jesus loved. He had that relationship. He had that agapeo relationship. And that can only be described and only be produced by one person individually, and that's yourself. I cannot produce that for you. I can tell you the truth. I can give you the truth. But it's all about you doing the pisteo and believing in the facts and the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. So here's John, this beautiful apostle, okay? But he wasn't all as beautiful in the beginning, was he? He was a fisherman ready to destroy. A fisherman ready to destroy. Do you remember? Remember when they went to the Samaria, the Samarians? Lord, they're not believing in you. You want me to call down fire and brimstone right now and zap them? Let's do it. Jesus called him and his brother the sons of thunder. Why? Because they were type A personality ready to go because they had a plan and they were going to execute and they were going to demolish as they went. Right? Not anymore. Not anymore. Over a process of time, not in the three years, over a process of time, from the beginning to the end of John's life, he developed this relationship and now now Jesus transformed him into a meek disciple of Jesus Christ. Power under control. Jesus had control of him now. He wasn't relinquishing power every time he thought or every time he saw something that needed to be done. That's me. Oh, let's kill it. Let's destroy it. It's a process of time that Jesus instilled this meekness in John. Beautiful. He went from a destroying fisherman to a meek disciple of Jesus Christ. Three elements in this section of verses 1 through 5. Three elements that comprise this title, the truth regarding Jesus. The first one is origin. Origin. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He 
was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, Genesis, he gives us the origin right there. John displays that truth. Gives us that truth. In the beginning, before anything existed, there was the Word, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this propositional statement, this very first verse, the statement of the fact, the word beginning provides us the truth that Jesus always was. Look at this. In the beginning was the word. John's providing for us or declaring a prepositional statement of fact. Jesus always was. He never had a starting point. He existed before time began, before anything else existed. That word was is very important. The word was, and he uses it a couple times in this one verse. But it's in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it has no end or beginning. It's in the imperfect tense with the indicative mood as its motive, which provides a statement of fact regarding the eternal nature of the word. In other words, it would say the word always was. He was always there. There was no starting point. There was no end point. He always existed. The New Living Translation translates it this way. In the beginning, the word always or already existed. So he's providing us a fact. A fact and truth about this person called the word. In other words, he's saying this. Jesus is timeless. Jesus is eternal. Jesus was always with God. And Jesus has always been God. He has always been God. It did not just happen when he was incarnated. It didn't happen. He was already God. He was God incarnated. There are swift people who know verbal judo who will come to your door and dissect, take apart this verse and tell you that the was 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 a God, not was God. That throws everything off about the truth regarding Jesus. Be careful of those who have verbal judo and come to swiftly deceive you at your door. You must know the truth. And the truth abides in you. That's where you'll get that freedom. The Holy Spirit you have. And the Holy Spirit will direct you during those times. But they put a little word in there, A, which throws everything off and take away that deity that John is trying to show us here of Jesus Christ. But this one verse, this one verse, that prepositional statement of fact that states that Jesus is and was always God, that one verse alone, that one statement, excludes all other religions or philosophy regarding truth, doesn't it? It has to. Truth excludes in its definition. When you look it up, truth excludes. There is no half-truth. Truth is truth. And it will exclude the rest and call them lies. And in this world, there is such... But when you put this verse, 
This is the very foundation which holds the Christian worldview together as the one true religion. The one true religion. This verse holds it all together. These first five verses hold it all together and declare that prepositional statement as a fact. The very Christian worldview that God the Son becoming man, dying for the sin of the world, the source of our existence, the motive behind our relationship with the God of the universe. It was all for a relationship. The sole purpose of Him coming. Yes, it was to take away our sins, but that's not all of it. That's a product of it. The sole purpose of Him coming, the reason why He came, was to provide a relationship with you and the Father and Him and the Son. That's why. John chapter 17 verse 3 describes that. Eternal life is this. To know the true God and His only Son, Jesus Christ. To know Gnosko. That's why He came. He had to get sin out of the way. He had to passionately go to the cross and destroy that sin so you can have a passionate, intimate relationship that He had intended from the first day of creation. The way He intended it to be. That's why He came. It's the essence of eternal life. No other religion, when you look at any other religion in this world, and you honestly look at it and you dissect it, no other religion can provide a relationship with an eternal God based on agape love. They can't. The other fact is, is that God dwells in you. No other religions like that. The other fact is God made man. God made man. He was in the beginning. He's always existed. And He desires a relationship with you. You can't get away from those facts or truths. And like I said in the beginning, it's not that the truths are hard to find. The answers to the truth are hard to find. It's the answers to the truth are hard for people to embrace. It's our lifestyle, the way we want to live the way we want to breathe, our destiny, the way we want to go. We want to be rulers of our destiny, don't we? We want to have successful businesses and families and, and such and such and etc. and etc. But if we stop and realize the truth regarding Jesus, life would change. Life would change. Ravi Zacharias, in whom I am extremely blessed, And I have gained lots of insight on knowing God and furthering my devotion and passion towards studying His Word because of this man and because of what God has done in his life. He uses four avenues, four avenues to determine or test worldviews or religions. Four avenues to test worldviews or religions. And he uses these four. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. He uses these four elements, these four avenues to put the test to each religion or worldview. That's how he tests them. That's how he concludes whether or not they're a lie or they're a truth. And you can do that. And you can find your result. And if you do that with these first two verses, even with this, these first five verses, you find this. For the origin, 
He is eternal. He always was. He is in the beginning. There was no time frame for God. There was no time frame for Jesus. He's outside our time domain. Man did not make him up. He did not come around 800 AD and find some some uh, holier-than-thou tablets. There's nothing man-made about God. We have to excrete or get away from and put away and kill those man-made thoughts of who God is because that's not who He is. That's origin. The second one is meaning. He is the source of all morality. He is the meaning of life. When you look at these first five verses, that's what you find. When you look at the first two verses, that's what you find. He's the ultimate authority of morality. You know, it's funny when people try to refute God and call him, no, there is no God. How can a God be a God of love and all let all this chaotic stuff happen and all this source of, of suffering go on? They forget the fact about morality. We cannot, as men and women, truly come up with a, a way of morality. We can't. There has to be an authority behind it for it to be truth and real because it exists within us. And God put that in you to know from right from wrong. Otherwise, why don't we just kill, rape, and do whatever we want? It doesn't matter. There's no purpose in it. He brings meaning. He brings authority behind the morality. He is morality. He is the righteousness of God. The third thing is morality, or excuse me, the fourth thing is his destiny. Destiny. He provides destiny. He's in control of destiny. He's eternal. And his whole destinal plan, his whole destiny and his whole plan for us was preordained. It was predetermined before time began. So don't get caught up on all that uh, other stuff in Ephesians chapter 1. Basically, Paul is saying, hey, the plan has always been to be with God. We just messed it up. He's always desired for you to be in his family. He's always desired to love you. But he's giving you this special gift called free will to choose him. That's what happened. But I love it because his destiny includes an eternal purpose which has been predetermined before time began and it includes this, to be with him forever. Beautiful. No other religion provides that. All the other ones, when you really look at the eternal purpose of their religion, it's all selfish. Or they still have to work to get there. They still have to work to get there or it's all about you. Christianity is all about Jesus and being with Jesus and all based and rooted in agape love. That's what excludes it from the rest. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It was in the beginning with God. This this uh, language that John uses, he uses this philosophical term here in verse 1 which is called the Word. The word. In the Greek, it's pronounced lagas or logos. Lagas. He uses this term, which was an ancient Greek philosophical term to define, listen to this. Okay? Listen to this. It's an ancient Greek 
philosophical term to define the controlling purpose of the universe. That, that right there, that plain definition of it, of what it was used for back in the Greek, back in ancient time, should give you a clue of a marvelous understanding, of a beautiful understanding of what his name means. Yahshua, Yahweh, Mashiach, Almighty, El Shaddai. That's it. He is the controlling purpose of the universe. Jesus is the Word. Beautiful how He does this. This is all through the Holy Spirit. To confound the wise. To confound the wise. He uses their wisdom, their philosophical terms, to confound them. It's beautiful. It should show you, it should show us how powerful this truth is regarding Jesus Christ. The truth regarding Jesus Christ. It is the word used for reason or why something exists. The divine wisdom and knowledge behind the existence. Ultimately, it shows this, that Jesus is the ultimate reason and authority for existence, morality, meaning, and destiny. All of it. It shows and gives us that authority who Jesus Christ is. But it's so marvelous, he starts out in the beginning of the book. Before he goes on anywhere in this book, he starts out with that prepositional statement of fact, of truth. And it's beautiful because his son Solomon the Wise figured that out. This is the wisest man on earth. And the whole basis of wisdom and what he says, because he wrote, what, 31 chapters in the books of Proverbs. And he talks all about wisdom in the first nine chapters. You notice how that's the very first beginning of his book, is wisdom and knowledge? Nothing else. It's all about pursuing wisdom and knowledge far greater than rubies, far greater than any kind of success in this world. Why? Because that's the root of it. The root of it is Jesus Christ. The root of it is God the Father. That's where you find purpose and meaning. Not in, not in rubies, not in success, not in riches, not in glory. It's in God the Father. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in the reality of the truth of who Jesus is. What are we doing wrong? But Solomon said this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'm not a philosophy major. I don't intend to show you that I am. But I think this should be the very first rule in philosophy 101. The fear of the Lord. Then you will know wisdom and knowledge. Then you will know the source. Then you can start building on that rather than coming up with terms that you decide to come up with because you cannot accept the truth. You cannot embrace the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ. That's why philosophy is what philosophy is. That's why you have existentialism. I am the sole authority of my destiny. I make purpose and meaning. The whole foundational work of existentialism is this. They look at a chaotic world and they say, ah, there cannot be a God. I have to be in control of my destiny and meaning. And I give purpose to life. And it's all through arts, music, and all the eccentrics of life. That's where you get that term. And it hasn't been just created just recently. 
It was created back in the age of enlightenment. Even before then, it's already been. It's always been here. The Tower of Babel. That's existentialism. I will be ruler of my own destiny. Logos. Logos. The meaning and wisdom of Jesus Christ. Second element, reason. Reason. All things were created or all things were made through him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. And without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. Let's read that again. All things were made through Jesus. All things. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. With verses 1 and 2 as our support. With verses 1 and 2 as our support. This very verse states that Jesus was the reason behind all things created. There is no other reason for it besides the purpose of Jesus. He was the mind behind it. He was the purpose behind it. And he was the wisdom and knowledge of it. He's the sole reason for our existence. I love it because it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop here, this prepositional statement of fact and truth of the reality or truth regarding Jesus, Paul backs it up in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. But he's writing to the church of Colossae, who's being affected by philosophy, by wisdom of the age, coming in and infiltrating the church. And he said to them, he says, don't be deceived By this emptiness. Or let anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the traditions of men. According to the basic principles of the world. And not according to Christ. There is, excuse me, there is only one truth. You cannot add anything to Jesus. You don't need to. The only reason why we add things to Jesus is because we want to live a certain way. Be true to yourselves. Come on. I'm guilty of it. You add things to Jesus because you want to live a certain lifestyle. It's the only way. You're deceived. We are all deceived in some certain way. And Paul says, don't let that philosophy or way of thinking or way of life or traditions of men cheat you. Because there's so much beauty in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in the rest of that chapter, you are complete in him. You don't need anything else. Marvelous. That is truth. You can take that to the bank and know that your check will never bounce. But he says this, supporting The fact that Jesus is the reason behind all creation in verse 15. Chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Look at that. He's basically giving us John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 right now. 
and Paul's way and Paul's passion and Paul's uh, definition of who he is in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. The firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Not that he was created like you and me. No, 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 no. He was incarnated. He's God. Made man. There's a group that'll come knocking on your door saying, see, he was created. He's a created being. No. Watch out for the verbal judo. The firstborn over creation, for by him, for by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. All the thrones, principles, and polities. What that means is all the evilness that goes on in our world and our nation, all the corrupt governments, all the stuff on the spiritual side we do not see. He's in control of all that. He's, he, he was behind all that. He allows all that. But it's for him. It's for him to reveal his nature, his deity, his power in our lives. So Jesus, Paul's saying here, Jesus is the firstborn. He is considered firstborn over all creation. This word means it's, it's, it's describing rank. Just like I talked about deity, that's what this word means. It's describing preeminence. It's telling us that Jesus is preeminent. He, he deserves all preeminence, all first place in everything. Everything is for him. Everything is about him. The whole reason for our existence is Jesus. So we must get to know him and find him. And find glory in Jesus. But this word that he uses, all things consist. All things consist in Christ. It's the Greek word, sunastemi. Sunastemi. It almost sounds like sustain me. Sunastemi. It means this. To put together, to put together, it's an action verb here, to put together, to unite parts into one. Here's the purpose. So as to cohere or hold things together. As to cohere or hold things together. In other words, without Jesus, your life would be a chaotic mess. You would fall apart. Even though you feel like you're falling apart right now and everything's chaotic in your world, the reason why you're not, you haven't lost it and blown your brains out or whatever the case might be is because he holds you together. He's like the atoms of the universe. Can you imagine if those things were let loose? I'm not a scientific major. I don't know those things. But when you know the basics of science and the basics of the universe, there's something that holds that together. And it's Him. That's what Paul is saying here. And Him, all things consist. He holds the entire universe together for a specific purpose that relates to Jesus, that relates to a relationship with Him and the Father forever. That's what that means. All things consist. That's what he does. That is the reality of the truth regarding Jesus. And when you look at this framework, when you look at this framework of who Jesus is and the framework of his, of his, the reason for existence, the reason behind all creation, it should give us a good clue of what was going on in chapter one of Genesis, shouldn't it? In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we know We can say in the beginning, Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, 
And God the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth for the purpose of Jesus Christ so we would know him. For the purpose so that we would know him and enjoy his creation. Isn't that how the rest of the chapters go? He does. He says that. He gave, he gave Adam an assignment. He said, Adam, I've created all this for you. Be fruitful and multiply. Bring more people in to enjoy my creation. And then also, I want you to manage, be a steward over my stuff. And by the way, do not eat of that tree. Everything else you can have, but don't eat of that. That'll destroy you. Perfect. Perfect life. It should give us a total clue and now open up all kinds of enlightenment in our hearts to go, man, Lord, you are awesome to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 with Jesus in the equation, huh? Because we know the Holy Spirit was there because the Spirit was hovering over the, the sea of darkness. So He's there. But now we know the source behind the Elohim. God in His plurality. The three in one. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. Now when you read that, you go, Jesus was there. The purpose of my existence, the purpose of that creation had to do with Yahweh, Yahshua. Verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life, and the life was light of men. Remember I said that this, that word life reoccurs over and over again. But this is the Greek word life. It means zoa, zoe, zoe. It's where you've heard children name this zoe or people have named zoe in the English accent. But in the Greek, it's zoa, zoa. It means this, life real and genuine. Basically, it's the intent of what life was supposed to be. It's the intent of what life is supposed to be. Right now, this world is not living Zoe. We don't have Zoe. If you have Jesus Christ, you are experiencing Zoe. You might be animated and you might have blood flowing through and breathing and have a heart, but you're not experiencing Zoe. Mike, you're wrong. Oh, no, I'm not. The Bible says right here, in him was life and the life was the light of men. It was the realization of what my life was supposed to be in the beginning. What I was created for. That's when Zoe comes alive at its full extent. And your devotion to God is now fully at its capacity. Because all you want to do in life is fulfill that calling God has put on you. That's Zoe. We look around and the rest of this stuff, that's not Zoe. That's not what God intended life to be. That's all because of the free will of man. That's why God loves us so much. He's not going to come to you and invade your life and make you love him. He wants to give you a beautiful choice so you can have an intimate relationship with him and experience the true life, Zoe. That's why in him is life. And that is the light of men. In other words, we understand why we were created. We understand what we were created for. And it becomes a process, this lifelong journey in finding out the will of God in my life. Man, it has been such a journey for me. I've traveled all over the Northwest thinking, God, do you want me here? Do you want me there? Do you want me here? Do you want me there? He's put me down at the beach for a quite some time. And then I fell in love with that place. And then he said, nope, I'm bringing you right back here to Running Springs. That's the process of Zoe. 
That's the process of sanctification. That's the process of believing in the deity of Jesus Christ. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. A beautiful example of this Zoe and how it extremely takes over and overwhelms a person is David Livingston. I love the old church saints, the old church saints. And the reason why I read about them is because I see how vigorous it was back then. I I don't discount anything that goes on now. But back then it gives me hope. Like, hey, all this faith, all this truth was still evident all through our time, all through our time, all the way up through here. And it gives me encouragement. It gives me enlightenment. And I get blessed by it. But when I read about David Livingston, even when I was a kid, even after that, even studying about him now, seeing the passion that's in him, Because when this light comes about in us, that Zoe, it incites passion. It incites passion. And that's what he had. This guy was supposed to, he went to China thinking he was going to go to China and be a missionary there. And then God redirected him and says, no, you're going to Africa. Makes him a missionary over there. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to tell people about the gospel. He saved one person. And that one person went back to polygamy. What do I do now, Lord? I'm staying here. I don't want to be out of your will. God used him to pave the way through the depths of Africa that people had not gone through to touch the tribes that no one touched to provide a way for churches to come and spread the gospel. That's what God used him for. He was like John the Baptist, the forerunner. I'm going to make the way. And I'm, he, his heart, God put such a passion in him to be an explorer, but it was an explorer for Jesus Christ. He said this, he said this, all that I am I owe to Jesus Christ revealed to me in his divine book. All that I am, I owe to Jesus Christ revealed to me in his divine book. That's where he got that Zoe. That's where he got that light. That's where he got that realization of who he was. You cannot find it any other way unless a true one. Otherwise, we're deceiving ourselves and going down a path of destruction. When Livingston died in a mud hut, he died on his knees. The tribesmen found him on his knees. And in his mud hut, he had an area that, that, that was made out of wood. And he'd sit there by his bedside. And he'd frequently uh, uh, visit there in prayer. And there you could see the imprint of his knees. And that's where he prayed. And he died there, leaning up against his bed with the Bible in his hand. London wanted his body. England wanted his body. They said, well, you need to bring that body back. And the Africans, the tribesmen that he affected that he was around and devoted his whole entire life to, they said, no, his heart belongs here in Africa. So what they did was they cut his heart out. They cut his heart out and buried it in a tree at the tribe at the area where he lived in, in the Zimbabwe. That's where he was. That's the kind of passion that influenced those people. Why? He was an abolitionist. He was against slavery. He was trying to break that. And for these black people, these Africans, to see the passion in this man, Jesus Christ, the Zoe come alive in this man, that said something to them. His heart was here for us, for his people. You can have the body, but his heart stays. Radical. That is radical. I've never heard of that. I read that, and it's like the chills went up my spine. I started weeping. That only can happen by truly understanding regarding the truth about Jesus Christ. Third, third element. Authority. Authority. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 4. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The authority and power of the light. The authority and power of the light. The darkness cannot comprehend it or overcome it or extinguish it. Whatever translation you're writing or reading, it all means the same purpose. He cannot be overcome. You cannot destroy the wisdom and power of Jesus Christ. It cannot be refuted. It is irrefutable. It's conclusive. It cannot be is what John is saying. This is how powerful it is. But however, because the light is in us, because it is the light of men, this truth, this life, this zoe, John says this, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That also refers to us. Children of God. He says this in verse 12, but as many as received him, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the authority or right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. There's an authority behind your belief and behind your uh, identity as a child of God. You are unstoppable, basically, of what John is saying. The light shines in darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it or overcome it or extinguish you. No matter what the trial might be. The life of the believer then becomes unstoppable. Nothing can conquer the child of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. Why? Because you have the light. The life of Jesus is in him wherever you go. That's the confidence that Hebrews says, the writer in chapter 13, he says, The Lord will not forsake me nor leave me. That I may boldly say, I will not fear what can man do to me. All in the context of covetousness lifestyle, right? Nothing can overcome you. The confidence, the power, the sustenance that's in that. It cannot be overcome. Despite any darkness that you might be going through. One more thing that Livingston said about his life in Africa. He said this, shall I tell you, this is when it's in his biographies, shall I tell you what supported me through all those years of exile among a people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude towards me was always uncertain and often hostile? Shall I tell you? It was this, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Remember I said earlier, You get in that quiet place and you hear the Lord speak. That's what he spoke to David Livingston. I am with you always to the end of this world. No matter where you go, David, no matter how hard the depths of Africa are, no matter the death of your wife, no matter how hard it is, no matter how bad malaria is eating you alive, because that's how he died. I am with you always to the end of this age. No suffering, no pain, no death, No matter what path lies before the child of God, you cannot be overcome because you have this light in you because this truth of the reality regarding Jesus Christ is alive and Zoe is in you. He's giving us a propositional statement, a fact. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Paul says this, he says, Yet, We are all but conquerors, more than conquerors through Christ. Jesus, who loved us. All this is based 
All this is based, the framework is built on agape, agape love. Nothing else, man. No other motives. Nothing else but to know Jesus Christ. Yes, through suffering. Yes, through pain. But also through joy. Also through joy. Experiencing those times on the mountaintop. He uses it all together for that purpose and fulfillment to build you up for that eternity purpose that he has with you. John, all this is love. And I love this because John, he, he, he says that in all the rest of his epistles. In John chapter four of his first epistle, he says this, God is love. God is love. In other words, what he was saying is, you know what? Everything that God does, the judgment, the, the, the destruction, the salvation, the redemption, the relationship, all that is rooted out of love and of his morality, not ours, his morality. Things we don't understand. That's what makes God, God and us man. God is love. Everything he does. But when all this is manifested, all this is manifested in the child of God, it shines in the darkness. Here's what happens. Your light shines in this darkness. That means the fact, the reality of this truth regarding Jesus Christ is so real and that Zoe is alive in the midst and depths of pain of suffering that what you believe in, that when people look at you and they say, what is going on? Your belief system, your worldview, your life now is irrefutable, conclusive to the fact that Jesus is God and that is alive and well within you in the way you live and the way you breathe. That becomes reality. That becomes truth. Then it becomes effective, effective, just like the tribesmen of Africa. The truth regarding Jesus, the truth regarding Jesus, just like I said before, it can be refused. It can be rejected. You have a choice. God gives you that free will to choose or reject. You have a choice whether to live a life according to Jesus Christ or define your own life or your own destiny. We ultimately have a choice. Every man, every man and woman ultimately come to a point in their life where they have a choice to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I tell you a story. And this story is not to dishonor my family. But it's a story to bring honor through Jesus Christ because of what he did through my family. I was just saved that year, that first year that I was saved in knowing Jesus Christ. And I had a remarkable transformation. This remarkable relationship with Jesus was flowing within me. And I get a call from my mother. And my mom says, your Uncle Alex is in the hospital. Your Uncle Alex is in the hospital. My Uncle Alex lived a life. He was 10 years older than me. He lived a life of sensual behavior, sensual lifestyle, and a bisexual lifestyle. He lived for whatever pleasure he had. Whatever he wanted to do, he did. Whatever he wanted to experience, he experienced to the fullest. You can almost, but not quite, compare him to Oscar Wilde. But he had that lifestyle. Destructive lifestyle, not even regarding the fact or the truth of Jesus Christ. And here was a young man, here was a man who was grown up, who was brought up in Jesus Christ. 
My grandfather, the pillar of my mom's side of the family, and my Aunt Ruth, they were both believers in Jesus Christ, and they used to pray fervently for their family. They still do. But my mom called me that night and said, Your Uncle Alex, he's dying. He's dying of AIDS. And I knew something happened to him. I saw him two, three months before, and he looked skinnier than a rail. He did not look like my Uncle Alex anymore. My Uncle Alex was plump and happy and always smiling and always drinking beer and doing whatever the case he might do. But it was fake. But my mom told me he's on his deathbed. He's dying. You need to pray for him, Michael. But she said this one thing. She said, your grandpa is here and your grandpa is by his bedside and he's reading to him the book of John. He's reading to him the book of John. One week later, my uncle was supposed to die during that time when my mom called him. He wasn't supposed to make it. AIDS had just taken the whole part of his body. Everything. He called me a week later and said, Michael, I gave my life to Jesus. I'm on the phone listening to him. You know the truth and the reality of this, of who Jesus Christ is? It's not the, not the fact that Jesus allows us to have our free will to choose. It's the fact that Jesus allowed us to have our free will to choose. And then when we destroy our lives and we come to the realization that He is truth, He saves us. That is monumental. That is truth regarding Jesus Christ. As I spoke of in the beginning about truth, it's not the answers to truth that are hard to find. It's not the answers of truth that are hard to find. It's the answers that are hard to embrace for the individual about truth. That's what makes it difficult. It's not that the answers are hard to find. They're there. It's whether or not we want to embrace them or can embrace them. When man decides to give up control of his life and his control of his destiny, then he can find true freedom. That's what Jesus said. The truth shall make you free. And the truth is Jesus Christ. He was referring to him, himself. Because he finally knows the meaning of his existence and the one who always loved him. The one who always loved him. The truth regarding Jesus. Origin, reason, and authority. It frees the soul so that you can be all you were created to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I pray that this truth would not go stagnant even in my own life. I pray that there would be no stagnant here. That this truth would truly create Zoe. That people would go out and know what Zoe is and what it means. And why you say in him was life and it was the light of men. May we not forget that truth. Please bless every individual here that came with that, Lord. Don't let them go without them knowing you. You bled for them. Show them how to bleed for you. I thank you, Jesus. Amen.